He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. And and right now, uh, Lydia, we're in, what, 38 states? Absolutely. Like what Curtis says, including the Bahamas, including uh, uh, Canada, and uh, a sliver of... Uh, that's because it's already dark. Europe, yep. After dark, I think sunset today was like four forty-five, and wow, what a show we have today! And uh, it's uh, the new year, and uh, we have in the studio here with us uh, Ed Cox. Welcome, Ed. Good to be here as always. And uh, Margot Katzmatini's Margot, you're, I'm glad you're here. Oh, I'm happy to. be I'm here taking too. a dinner afterwards. Oh, great. <laughs> and on the phone, uh, I understand Judge Weinberg is standing by, uh, and. Uh, Lydia, what say you? We've got uh, General Jack Keane on the line. He's a retired American four-star general, former vice chief of staff of the United States Army and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Welcome back to Cats and Night, General. No, I'm delighted to be here. Happy New Year. Happy, happy New, New year. year. We hope it's a happy New Year. You know, as far as I'm concerned, 22, we can just get rid of it, you know? Mm. Uh, where do we go, General? Where do we go today? I mean, there's so many things we are going on. Uh, Ed Cox, you had a, a question before. Yeah, General, it's, it's Ed Cox. The, uh, there, there are several different outcomes, which I think you've laid out for the war in Ukraine. Now, that's about Russia. But our ultimate problem is China, long term. How do those different outcomes impact China uh, and the, the way – uh, from the point of the geopolitical point of view? Well, certainly, uh, yes, our number one uh, security challenge uh, long-term is is China, for sure. Uh, China and Russia are obviously connected because they entered into a, an official strategic partnership. Um, I believe uh, China and President Xi is, is probably somewhat concerned about how this war has gone, expecting a different outcome, Uh the, the meeting that Putin had with him uh, during the Olympics uh, prior to the announcement of their strategic partnership, I'm sure he told him, uh, told President Xi that this was just going to take a matter of days or weeks and it'll be over quickly. And that obviously has not happened. And Putin is now being accused of being an international war criminal and committing genocide. That doesn't uh, mean that President Xi is going to walk away from this relationship because their mutual interest is what brings them together, and that is uh, authoritarian regimes who want to change the world order as, as it has existed since World War II, and therefore they're opposed to the United States and particularly Western democracies and other democracies uh, as well. That is what will keep them uh, together. I think President Xi is likely uh, learning some lessons from what has taken place here. Uh, certainly, the support that the United States and our allies has provided uh, to Ukraine, the scale of it and the fact that it, it has continued rather steadfastly is something that uh, he's paying attention to, obviously, uh, when it comes to Taiwan and the support that uh, that could be rendered to, to to Taiwan as well. And I think he's, he's also uh, looking at the impact of the sanctions and what it, what effect they're really having. That, that's something that concerns him right now. And it's the number one reason why he hasn't provided military aid 
to Russia, even though he supports Russia, obviously, in a general sense, is because he doesn't want those sanctions imposed on him, particularly given the fact his economy is in trouble. Let, let's put Putin aside and uh, and the relationship that's important to Putin with Xi and for Xi with Putin. Why would Russia geopolitically want to be the junior partner for a country that's 10 times its size in population, in economy, is growing faster, and covets it far east and knows in the 19th century that Russia took away a good portion of China's northeast and China wants it back. Why would Russia want to be the junior partner? Well, because Russia's economy, you know, is a one commodity economy and they're, they need a strong partner like that to, to help sustain them, not just geopolitically, but, but also uh, economically. I mean, Russia has so many major problems, largest country in the world, and yet they only have 150 million people in that country, and they have a declining birth rate. If you're a male in Russia, you die nine years earlier than you do in the United States, which is really quite uh, quite staggering. So they have, they have serious issues, and, and certainly this commitment to the war in Ukraine has, uh, has listed a scab that has exposed a a rather significant wound. We gave them credit for having a very competent military, and that certainly is not the case. They are a nuclear power, to be sure, and a formidable one. But, yeah, they need uh, China uh, much more than China needs Russia. Yeah, but if Putin were out because he, uh, very embarrassed by a complete victory by Ukraine, uh, there are people who are ahead of state planning at the State Department under Bush, W. Bush, and under under Obama, who say that Russia would naturally gravitate to the West. Uh, wouldn't that be a plus for the West vis-a-vis China? Yeah, if something like that happened, but I I think most of us who look at Russia and if Putin goes as as a result of his performance uh, during this war, and he and he loses the political support of the elites around him. Most of us believe that a strong uh, Russian nationalist or ultra-nationalist would likely take over. As opposed be, to the Western person, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to leaning towards the West. Well, Putin originally wanted to be part of the European community. And uh, so President Obama, I think, sort of pushed him away. You were there, General, so I don't know. You, you, you were in the middle of that. Well, I think what really happened to Putin, he was very frustrated uh, with the former Soviet republics that so quickly after the Soviet Union dissolved, began initially to align themselves immediately with the West, and then eventually uh, to become a part of NATO. Certainly, uh, Russia was pushing back on those countries becoming a part of NATO and and warning the West not to do that. Uh, But given given the passion that those countries had and given they lived they lived under communist rule for all of those years, they really wanted the security blanket going forward. They know full well that Russia under Putin is not a country to to be trusted. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, Putin was not in power. Remember, there was a lot of chaos and confusion in the country during those 90s. And he came into power uh, in, in 2000. And most of them began to move rather quickly towards uh, NATO, knowing full well that Putin was likely to be very aggressive. And that turned out to be the case. General, it's uh, 2023. we got a minute left before we go on. Uh, what do you want to tell the American people? 
Well, the United States is facing some of the most serious security challenges it's faced in some time, certainly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, with China, Russia, Iran, very aggressive, North Korea, a belligerent power with a growing nuclear arsenal, and radical Islam still out there as a threat. Uh, but certainly these security challenges, would, uh, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats are in charge, they are formidable. They're, they're comprehensive, complicated, and every bit as dangerous as the uh, bipolar uh, challenge we had with the, with the Soviet Union. So the Department of Defense needs a, a budget to support it. Uh, the American people need to understand the dangers and, and support the leaders and question the leaders going forward you know, about their policies uh, and, and whether they really are working and whether they're effective or not. Well, thank you so much, General Jack Keen. And again, we wish you a happy and healthy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you. Enjoy thank you. Being with happy you. New Year. Now on the line for us, we have Governor David Patterson. Governor Patterson, you were on fire this morning on Sid and Friends, a.k.a. Curtis and Cass. And he couldn't get all his two cents in, so we're giving him an opportunity to finish Absolutely. his two cents. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lydia. You know uh, what the hell um, happened up in uh, Albany? Uh, I, you gave a great interview to Arbiter there with respect to uh, to uh, what was going on. Well, you see, as I see it, um, we can learn from history. This is what I told them: that Judge Hugo Black, who served on the United States Supreme Court during the famous Brown versus Board of Education case and a lot of others, and was at some point considered its most liberal at the time they called it member. He, as a young man, had entertained joining the Ku Klux Klan at one point, but he totally vehemently denied any association, or any, and, and his career proved that he had really uh, changed his ways. And all I'm trying to say is that this judge, um, you know, everyone's talking about what he did, but that's what the process is for, to give him a hearing and let him explain it. You can ask him all the questions you like and, uh, and let him um, you know, steer the hearing in a direction, hopefully, that would be favorable to him. If not, the members don't have to vote for him. It's as simple as that. But jumping the gun and making these sort of threats that some of the legislators are making, I, I just thought it was totally out of line and I think very disrespectful of the governor's choice. The and governor the, had a right to make a choice. Uh, governor, <laughs> why, why did Kathy Hochul, why did Governor Hochul sign the pay raise without getting anything in return? Well, I think that what happened, John, was that they had the agreement for the pay raise before December 23rd, which was the last day that she could she had a, a time period that she had to select a judge. So it's possible that she wasn't really thinking about it at the time, although she could have held up the payroll pay raise over some crime issues that, you know, have been, uh, you know, have been uh, popular in New Jersey and and California, which are the last two states to give judges uh, some viability in the process. I remember very well in 1999, Pataki got his charter school bill just the way he wanted it in exchange for a pay raise. I think oh, uh, hey, I, I mean, think I, Governor I, Hochul I, needed you and Pataki as consultants. And why wasn't Pataki <laughs> invited you, uh, to the inauguration? He's beloved by both Republicans and Democrats. He wasn't invited to the inauguration? I don't think he no, was. No, he was not. Oh, Wow. I mean, uh, in all the time I've been there, the, the former governors, particularly the governor, would be insulted if the former governors weren't invited. That, that's, that's not a good thing.
Well, t- tell us what, what do you think happens from now from uh, from now on? I mean, well, is she gonna, what's going to happen with the uh, with the judge? When I said the other day on, on uh, the Sunday show, John, when I said that uh, she may have uh, had an unforced error, what I meant by that was that there had been a lot of publicity about the commission that was set up and how it was set up and who the judges were that were coming out of that commission. And unfortunately, some legislators even suggesting who should be selected, which was also improper. But what I would say is right now, as you're starting your term as governor, and I I think the governor would probably agree with this, you really don't want to have this battle internally in your own party about your uh, judicial selection. So I'm hoping that they can come to some conclusion that will be helpful to everyone. But I fear that perhaps they may not be able to do that. Ed? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the uh, I've served on that commission on judicial nomination that picked the seven uh, judges or other scholars who could be on the Court of Appeals and uh, the from which the governor has to pick. And I've never seen so much political interference with the operations of the commission. Uh, the legislators suggesting this and that, the Senate threatening to do this and that if certain people were right. picked. Ed, can, Never can saw I ask it. you a question. Um, did, did you ever know anything about how the commissions were put together or even suspect that the commissions were rigging the process? Or Never. Never. Kind of got accused. That accusation was sort of made here. Uh, this is the first time I have seen some really hardcore uh, yeah. uh, interference. There may be a subtle because suggestion or something as you, as you, coming from a governor. As you, said, as you said last week on the show, Ed, this was one of the processes that was normally very apolitical. And it should be. It was designed that way. <laughs> Judge Weinberg, yeah. do you have a question for Governor Patterson? <laughs> David, what do you think the political consequences if uh, – this nomination is not uh, affirmed by the Senate. If this not, nomination is not affirmed by the Senate, then they've got to go yes. back and start all over again. And I think it really uh, damages the not just the governor. I think it damages everybody in the process because nobody has stepped up here and come up with a way. Like, why didn't they have a press conference and, and say, look, well, we've, we've had some and problems. And I haven't seen the Hispanic community jumping up and down on uh, LaSalle. That's very interesting. Um, he's from Suffolk County. He, he, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure he was involved in a lot of the organizations. Uh, but, you know, it, maybe that's actually the wise decision right now. Let's just wait and see how the process goes. But I certainly think well, I look that, forward. Um, he, he, he should be given a chance to speak for himself. Understood. Governor Patterson, and thank John, you. I went, out of my way today. I'm at guitar class with the famous Dan Smith. You've seen his signs up all over Manhattan. And I'll go back to my guitar lesson now. Well, I think you're doing a wise thing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Governor Patterson. And uh, right. now on the line we have uh, Dick Morris. And we started a conversation three months ago. Is it going to be Hillary versus Trump? Yeah, well, it's hard to tell at this point. Biden has to get out of the way first. And uh, we'll see if he does. Uh, if he gets out, I think that Hillary will get in. And I think she'd have a heck of a shot. But let me talk about something else, John, that's been on my mind. A lot of people speculated how DeSantis and Trump 
is are going to fare as they move possibly into competition for the Republican nomination. And uh, I believe that DeSantis in the last month has more or less disappeared. Uh, you don't hear a lot about him. You don't read a lot about him. And the problem he faces is a generic one, which is that Donald Trump is so big and so huge and so important and so controversial on both the pro and the con side that there's no room for anybody else, that all the oxygen in the room is taken. Can you imagine if the prosecutors were to come after Trump and return a grand jury uh, verdict? Uh, then everybody in the country, the only thing people would be talking about is, is he guilty or innocent, just like with O.J. Simpson. And nothing else could matter. And uh, there's no place for DeSantis to stand. He can't say, I think he's innocent, but I don't think he should be president. He can't say he's guilty because uh, he'll get killed in the Republican primary. And I think that ultimately we don't really understand the dynamic that Trump creates in his wake. Uh, when, he's, uh, when he's noisy, and aggressive and talking up forcefully about his ideas and policies. Nobody can get a word in edgewise. But Dick Edcox here, and here's the question. Why, why did uh, Donald Trump declare so early? Uh, and then when he, after he declared, nothing happened. After you declare, normally you got a whole campaign going, you got appearances, and you really, uh, you, you really create a lot of, lot of noise. Here's, here's the new Trump. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, why, why didn't that, why did he declare so early? Well, you're going to see rallies in the next few weeks, I think. And I think probably he'll do a rally monthly, uh, during the course of this year. Uh, and, uh, the reason he declared early was precisely to preempt the field and, suck all the oxygen from the room. And I think he's doing that. I think that, that he has the capacity to monopolize the stage, and I think he's doing that. One of the things that I think he's doing is that he is creating a dynamic in 2023 and 2024 of Trump versus McConnell. And uh, McConnell has become one of the most hated figures in the Republican Party. Even today, uh, Biden is touring Kentucky with him, telling all the pork that McDonald voted, McConnell voted for uh, that, uh, that, that is screwing up, will screw up our economy and touting it and pointing to it. I think that, but I think that the point that DeSantis faces about running his campaign is how do I get a word in edgewise? Uh, everybody will focus on whether Trump should be you know, indicted or not. The Republicans will say no, and he'll be fine because he'll get the nomination. And 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 I think that the that then people will be looking at the issue of uh, of of how of, of Trump's approach, Trump's programs, Trump's personnel. They'll always be he'll be constantly in the center of controversy, and that will make it very difficult or impossible for DeSantis to get a word in edgewise. Uh, I think that we have to understand that he's the elephant in the middle of the room that makes it impossible for anything else to happen in that room. Now, uh, during your lunch uh, uh, speech, that your lunch lunch alert, alert, you said that uh, Mitch McConnell and is getting paid off by uh, Joe Biden. How is that? Well, today we're witnessing the payoff. 
that the pigs are having a celebratory lap around the trough. Uh, <laughs> Biden <laughs> and McConnell are both in Kentucky touring Together? all of the poor. Yes, touring all of the poor, wow. all of the projects. So how much did it cost the taxpayers? I think I heard he's giving him a billion-dollar uh, battery plant for Kentucky. Well, <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but he, the, the the budget costs one point seven trillion, and uh, and he's actually having the audacity and the tone deafness, uh, Biden and McConnell to tour Kentucky together, touting how wonderful this is going to be for Kentucky, and uh, like I said, the pigs are having a celebratory lap around. And, and the Republicans, Ed Cox, are the Republicans nationwide like this? No. I think McConnell has totally destroyed himself permanently in the Republican Party. He's become the hate figure. And just as you've always had a reformist tendency in the Republican Party, conservative, that goes up against the establishment, as Goldwater did against... Well, didn't didn't Chris Christie do that in New Jersey uh, when uh, Obama came over to help him with the storm and he gave him a few hugs? Absolutely. Chris Christie can't get elected dog catcher now. Well, he could have been vice president, but that killed him. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think McConnell is in much the same shape. And uh, I think that he gives Trump a marvelous spoil. And then again, we get back to DeSantis. What the hell is he going to do? Is he going to support McConnell, in which case he'll lose every single primary? Or is he going to? Let's hear from Ed Cox. You you have the establishment, the national Republicans. (laughs) Well, how are they going to feel about McConnell being kissing cousins with Joe Biden? I don't think they really care at this point. They're just going to be focused on the presidential candidates and uh, and who emerges from uh, from the pack. What happens? What's right. happening to Dick Trump? Dick Morris, who is it going to be for president in 24? Oh, Trump. But the, the point I was making is that I think that uh, I think that when you look at this race, uh, it is going to be polarized into you're either for Trump or you're for Biden. There won't be room for anybody else. And uh, if you believe Trump is innocent, you're going to be for him. Believe he's guilty, you're going to be against him. The people that are against him are going to go for Biden. The people that are for him are going to vote for Trump. And where does DeSantis So let's talk about DeSantis. He's got to go. He's a governor. And there's always a liability running for president as a governor. He's got to finish what he's doing with the legislature and his budget. And that's going to be sometime in what uh, April or 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 May. And he finishes. How's he going to come out of the box? Uh, is he going to get stuck with McConnell? I don't think so. He's not a part of that. So how does that play out? Yeah, but, yeah, but he has to play up to McConnell because he needs Medicaid money and he needs hurricane relief money. And uh, McConnell will absolutely kill Florida if DeSantis goes against him. And we got, uh, who do we have on now? We have John McLaughlin is on the phone with us now. John, you have any questions of Dick Morris? It's great. It's great, Dick. How's how's Mar-a-Lago treating you? You still doing well down there? It's great. Yeah, I had a wonderful (laughs) meeting with the president earlier today. And uh, like you, John, I'm I'm quoting you. I said Uh to him that you can't let Biden disappear. This guy has a tendency to just disappear. He's in Wilmington, Delaware, and nobody knows he's alive. And uh, St. Croix. And he, St. Croix, yeah. And, and he's perfectly happy to have everybody focus on McCon- uh, McConnell, on uh, the budget, 
on Trump, on special prosecutors, on everything, and where the hell is Joe Biden? And Biden, Trump has got to not let him do that. He's got to drag Biden back into the spotlight and make clear that every single issue he's talking about is about Joe Biden, just like John McLaughlin suggested he did to Hillary in 2016. And, you know, the point is that there is a, there's, there's a balance between Trump and Biden, just like there was between Ali and Fraser and the Capulets and the Montagues and Napoleon and Wellington. You can't think of one without the other. And, uh, and, Biden's, and, and Biden and Trump are such an item. And Trump can keep that status. DeSantis can't take it away from him. And Trump's, Biden's negatives become Trump's positives. John McLaughlin, uh, give us your two cents of what's happening in 2023. Well, I think Dick's exactly right about that. The primaries have already started. I mean, I mean, the minute the election was cast and done with on, on November 8th, the primaries have started. That's why. That's why uh, uh, after after the after the uh, November election, uh, President Trump announced because it, it wasn't news. Everybody expected him to announce. What's interesting is that no one's come in, or no one is really coming in, or looking like they're coming in, because he dominates the primaries. And uh, uh, we're headed for, you know, there'll there'll be a contest. There'll, somebody will get in the race, just or others will get in the race. And Biden is not a sure thing either. So what will happen is President Trump is ahead right now, even against DeSantis, one-on-one on our last December poll. He was ahead 58-36 nationally. He was ahead by 22 points. In a field of, like, 13 candidates, he was ahead by 25 points. But like, like, but it's, a, it's, it's this polarization between the two parties that's going to drive the nomination through 2023. And the first contest – isn't until like February of 24, and the Democrats aren't going to award delegates until South Carolina in uh, uh, 24 because Biden's trying to change the rules because he knows he's weak. But what's going to happen is Biden's going to attack Trump. Trump's going to attack Biden. They're going to feed each other. And and really what's bad for the country, John, you know more about, the, you know, I'm listening to, to you about economics, but the recession is, is, if not already here, because six out of ten voters already think we're in recession. If it's not here, it's coming, and it's going to be bad. And uh, you know, when you, you know, like Margot, Happy New Year to Margot. I know she's in the studio waiting for for, for, for <laughs> guys to stop talking. <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 right when you go to the supermarkets, when you go to the stores, when you go when Margot's out there as a businesswoman, you can see people are. People are not happy with the prices and inflation, and they're not happy. Yeah, but you know, they're, they're only going to go down one way if, if uh, President Biden allows it to go, to open up uh, and not uh, hurt the uh, fossil fuel companies. We're not going to run. When are we going to get it together? We're not going to run this country on wind and, and on uh, solar batteries, solar cells. I mean, it's not going to happen. And All right, going to strengthen Donald Trump that, as, he, as he campaigns through the year. Big, he's the only one for that. So, all right, a, a big Ed Cox, big question here with respect to Trump put out a little piece talking about third party. So he didn't say it directly, but the hint was he may do a third party run. And what do you? I'd like to hear from each of you about that. What do you think? When you're the front runner, there's no reason to be the third party. So yeah, so but like, but yet he, I, he put I, I, he put out a piece that was sort of talking about third party run that he might do, and he and he, and he put it out. It was a th- well, I think it was a Trump threat to the Republican. I party. think uh, yeah. No, I don't. I, 
it's 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 like they could drive him out of the party and he could run as an independent. But even Bloomberg, you know, thought about that and then he decided not to do it. Cause he it won Guam. It, it, right. It takes a half, it takes a half a million a billion dollars. It takes like five hundred million dollars to qualify in all these states. Independent is not is not realistic. But he, on the other hand, what's more important is winning the primaries. So by the time you get by the time twenty twenty four hits comes around and you're winning the primaries, you know you win Iowa, you win New Hampshire, you win South Carolina, then 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 you're well into the process that running as an independent just isn't isn't real realistic. And when you're winning delegates, it's not realistic. So I think unless Dick disagrees, I think I think you run for you, you, he's changed the Republican Party and Dick? he dominates the Republican Party. Absolutely, it's the party. Dick, we got one minute left. Yeah. Uh, Dick hung yeah. up on us. I guess we weren't interesting enough. <laughs> but he went back to be with the president. <laughs> but we but got no, thirty seconds left. Maybe Dave. he's going to ask him John. when he's going to do an independent run. Come back and tell us. <laughs> he's talking about him. It doesn't make sense. He's no, doing a dinner alert. Yeah, no, now. I agree with you. I agree. With I, you. The, the problem is getting to fifty-one percent. Real fast, we got fifteen seconds left. The Democratic Party. If Biden doesn't run, who's the leader? It's a, it's a wide open race then, and and I think you'll see a new face. I think it won't be Pete Buttigieg from Southwest Airlines. That's for sure. So, <laughs> Governor Ga- Gavin Newsom could be. Well, could be. Could John, be. thank you. I'll bet on Hillary. And the markets are closed today, so there's no Lou Dobbs report. So, but we're going to take a break. sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show in studio with us. Margot Katsimatidis, got to give ladies first. Uh, Chairman Ed Cox and John Katsimatidis and myself, Lydia Serrani. We're still waiting to get in touch with Gary McCarthy. He's a former police superintendent of Chicago. We're going well, to there's a new law. Uh, and Judge uh, in, Weinberg Illinois. on the line. Right. And Judge yeah. Weinberg, why don't you tell us about it? The uh, state legislature, at the urging of uh, Pritzker, the governor, passed a law totally eliminating the ability of judges to set uh, cash bail on defendants. So it's the first state in the entire country that says no cash bail at all, totally takes the discretion away from judges. The judges and the DAs sued on that. Uh, the state Supreme Court has stayed the enforcement of that law. The argument is that the state legislature is impinging upon the jurisdiction and the authority of judges, which is a separate and independent branch. It's a violation of the separation of powers. So the law is now stayed, but it hasn't been blown out. There's going to be full arguments on that. This is a very, very dangerous law, particularly when you're talking about Chicago and, and Illinois, which really oh. is becoming the, the one of the crimes. They got a huge crime. You know what? States. You know what this tells me, Richard. This tells me that Pritzker is running for president, and he's trying to make a pitch to the conser- progressives that I'm more progressive than anyone else, and I've eliminated cash bail completely. Oh my I, God! I agree with that. But I didn't realize that. that. Sure. Yeah. No, Who else is out? I agree with that, John. And I will tell you this: as a, as a matter of public safety and law enforcement and saving the city of Chicago from total demise, they couldn't do a worse thing. It's a terribly stupid thing, and I think Pritzker's going to come to regret it. 
And I think Pritzker, by the way, has no chance of being a, a presidential candidate. How he much? I mean, the Pritzker family is from the old Hyatt hotels. How much of a net worth do they have? They got oh, a lot of money. Billions and billions. But but the point but the point is he's not a viable he's not a viable candidate no. for for a number of reasons. Ed, you agree with that? Well, we have. I understand. Uh, we have McCarthy on. He's a former police superintendent in Chicago. He's also a candidate for mayor of Chicago. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Gary McCarthy. Hey, guys. How are you? We're talking about this new bail law. You tell us what uh, what to make of it. Well, this is just um, probably the worst-case scenario of politicians trying to legislate good policing, which you can't do. It has to happen through policy and leadership. But um, – Listen, they're just kowtowing to the lowest common denominator that they think is what they're supposed to be doing. Look, you know what, John, simply, I I have been out of policing for a couple of years. I I just went to a conference in in Dallas. And five years ago, uh, any conference I went to, we spent 75 to 80 percent of our time talking about gun violence and how to reduce crime. And at this conference, I, I was struck by the fact that 75 to 80 percent of the conversation was about equity and social justice. And Are it, you it kidding? Me. At, at no. the conference? Yes, at a police conference, police chiefs. And, and it dawned on me, you know, the reason why crime is up across the country is because we're, quote, unquote, trying to build trust. Now, this is... I'm going to try and make it as simple as possible. You can't build trust without first building legitimacy. And we give up our legitimacy when we dance at block parties and we pump gas for people and take seniors um, food shopping and, you know, we, we shovel snow and so on and so forth. And the bad guys are looking at us like a bunch of clowns. So we're diverting resources and we've given up our core mission. And, and it could be more clear. At the budget hearing here in Chicago, like two months ago, um, Jason Irvin, who is the head of the Black Caucus, told David Brown, he said, look, I don't want you to be a social worker. I don't want you to be a basketball coach. I want you to be the police and do your job. And it couldn't be more clear what's happening across the country is politics is dictating policy. Politics is dictating policy. And the liberal uh, politicians are forcing these policies on policing, and these men and women, unfortunately, are buying into it. Nobody's fighting it. Nobody's saying, look, all legitimacy comes from doing our job, which is providing for the public safety, and with that, we will build trust. But that's just not happening. And, and you know, there's no cash bail thing uh, here in Illinois. is a perfect example. Thankfully, the Supreme Court here in Illinois has put it on hold. You know, no, does, does anybody stand over the electrician when they're, when they're working in their house or, or the plumber and tell them how to do their job or, or, God forbid, a doctor tell them how to do their job? But with policing, it's entirely different. Everybody thinks that they know better than the police. I'm sorry. That's really not the case. And, and that's what's going on, period. You know, uh, Ed Cox here, what the uh, here in New York. Uh, the issue was decided by an election. We had a, for the nomination for mayor, the Democratic nomination for mayor, uh, the candidate who won, first thing out of the box, he was a former captain of the police force, 
And he said, safe streets is my first priority. And he was elected by the working class people in the inner city. Uh, isn't that the answer? Um, it, it would be. That's what they but, want. That's yeah, what the inner course, city wants. Needed. That's what the people want. By the way, my yeah, friend but, Neil uh, Yohe just uh, texted me, uh, Governor Pritzker is worth $3.6 billion. Yeah, and he, and he paid for his own election. And he actually paid for the Republican candidate who he wanted to go against because he thought he could beat him pretty easily. He actually donated money to support his opponent um, in, the, in the Republican primary. I mean, th- th- we're just upside down. You can buy elections. Not that that hasn't happened in the past. But here in in Chicago and Illinois, it's probably the worst case scenario. Well, Gary, do you, my friends, go ahead. Sir. Do you do you think that he's trying to buy the presidency here by pleasing the progressives with this? Absolutely. Uh, out, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, there's no doubt about it. And and kowtowing um, to to an element that is. Anti-establishment is the only way to put it. You know, uh, George Soros funding, yeah, funding all the all the state's attorneys across the country in these progressive uh, dynamics is is destroying the country. Quite frankly, the new George Soros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's what's happening, and and it's a it's a pity, it's a shame. Um, And then I'm looking at the mayoral election here in Chicago. And, you know, Lori Lightfoot, in my opinion, has done a horrible job and probably in most people's opinion. And then the, more the, kids the are dying guy. than ever, ever before in Chicago. Yeah. And you know what? They, they brag about the fact that, you know, last year they had a, a banner year as far as the worst year we've had since the early 90s. They had 800 plus murders, which, by the way, John, is a 100 is percent increase since I was superintendent here in Chicago. But. They they brag about the fact that they they knocked down the, the murders this year compared to last year. Well, let's look at the four years that she's been mayor and, and what's happened here. But now you got you got a socialist uh, congressman who jumped into the race, Chuy Garcia, and they're going to be the top two candidates. And, and it's just pathetic unbelievable. To think what unbelievable. could happen here? Uh, Gary, well, Gary McCarthy. Thank you so much for coming on, and Happy New oh, Year. And pleasure. I hope Chicago gets better. I hope the whole country gets better. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we have Gordon Chang to talk about China and Ed Cox at your department. All right. Well, this is John Katzmatidis, and uh, uh, we now go to China. We have one of our biggest experts in China uh, on the phone, uh, Gordon G. Chang, and one in the studio, Ed Cox. Well, Gordon, is, is China trying to infect the world three uh, again? It's uh, three years since January 2020, uh, and now it's uh, January 2023. What, what, what's your opinion? Well, Happy New Year, John. And yes, it certainly does look that way, because as the Chinese regime knows, um, the COVID-19 is ripping through the country. So, for instance, on one day, December 20, the National Health Commission estimates 37 million people were infected. But as the outbreak has grown to immense proportions, 
the regime is allowing outbound travel. And that mimics what it did in 2020 when it lied about contagiousness of COVID-19. It said the the disease was not contagious. And then it pressured other countries to take arrivals from China while it was locking itself down. This looks like a replay of 2020. And the, the first Chinese to show up and half the plane uh, was affected with COVID was in Milan, which is where COVID first entered into uh, and what Europe. Did, what did Italy do? Did they turn back those passengers, Gordon Chang? Well, what they did was they tested them on arrival. There were two flights, one from Beijing and the other from Shanghai. And almost 50 percent of the arrivals on those two flights had COVID. And I believe they, they sent them back. Um, but that was not reported. What's what's the connection between Milan and uh, and China that the Chinese that's the first place that the the Chinese came to? It's the uh, fashion industry where there are a lot of Chinese workers and Chinese companies. And so there's always been a lot of travel between China and northern Italy, specifically Milan. And also, uh, Gordon Chang, I wanted to bring your attention to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He was on the Cats Roundtable this past Sunday, and he said something very interesting about the fact that the Chinese are now traveling all over the world, specifically because of the Lunar New Year. I mean, I think it's half the population. Take a listen to what Pompeo said right here. Just as in the spring of 20, he sent people around the world who he knew were infected. He's doing the same darn thing again. He's going to infect millions more. We shouldn't let that happen. What do you think about that, that he is President Xi? Oh, I think that uh, Secretary Pompeo is absolutely right, and we should be prohibiting all arrivals from Chinese soil. Um, you know, a lot of epidemiologists don't like travel bans, but the point is uh, they do work, especially if they're put in place early and they're rigorously enforced. And even if the disease is already here from China on this new wave, we got to remember that the death of any one more American is unacceptable. The problem here is that China is not sharing sequencing data, so we don't know what's going on with the disease in China. The only way that we can figure this out, Lydia, is when planes arrive, they test the wastewater to see what's in the poop. And, and really, that's the point uh, we're reduced to. China should be sharing this data, but it's not. And so, therefore, we shouldn't be allowing anybody from China into the United States at this point. So, Gordon, we do not know if this is a stronger variant, uh, a more vicious variant. I don't variant. think they know what the, which variant it is or if it's a new one. We know some things about it for, because people have arrived, but we don't know anything from China because China is not sharing anything. So, for instance, we don't know um, if this is mutating, which it probably is because it's ripping through um, estimates 800 million people this winter, and that's on the low end. Also, we don't know about the, pre- uh, the presence of other diseases, so we're in the dark. I mean, this is unprecedented for a country not to share sequencing data, and I think that this is intentional. Um, so in these circumstances, why should we allow anybody from China onto our soil? Do we have any idea the number of deaths? Because China's got a proportionally old population uh, do we have any idea the number of deaths uh, to date in China? People are talking about 5,000 deaths a day. Um, the regime has reported about seven, about uh, 13 deaths, I think, since <laughs> the beginning of December. But it's running about 5,000, 6,000 a day, according to Airfinity, which is a London-based health researcher. 
Um, and they estimate that uh, when this is over through the winter, there'll be 1.7 million deaths in China. Wow. Other people say a little bit less. Some people say more. But um, clearly, we have seen from the videos um, of these um, corpses that are lying around the streets. And in Shanghai, the crematoria are so busy that uh, Chinese people are cremating their relatives on the street. What? Yeah, don't they uh, have the facilities, the hospital facilities to take care of? No. Say that one they again. Don't. They're cremating people on the streets? Yes, there are videos which you can find of people cremating their relatives on the streets because the crematoria are completely backed up. Oh um, we have God. seen these people are dying. People are dying at a frightful pace, and really, what if you if you think back to 2020, um, the whole idea in the United States and other societies was to flatten the curve so that there wouldn't be stress on hospitals. What China has been doing is compressing the curve. That's the um, inevitable result of their decision on uh, December 7th to basically repudiate the whole notion of zero COVID and just take down all the controls. So we're at a point in China where they didn't build ICU beds in anticipation of an outbreak of disease because they were so focused on trying to prevent transmission. They did not think about what to do should there be big outbreaks. Now, and on right the phone now, with us, calling in at the same time, and maybe Gwen Chang, you hold on for a minute or two, we have Dr. Peter Michalos. And I don't know if Dr. Peter Michalos has any comments on this before we go on to his subject. Well, one of the problems I think that was that in China, they've been in severe lockdowns and communities that have been in lockdowns, their immune systems have been in hibernation. So the sudden release of people out and about without proper uh, immunity and the buildup of antibodies is causing probably the rampant spread and uh, what uh, Mr. Chang is describing. I think the difference is that in the United States, fortunately, uh, we have uh, many people who are vaccinated, and also the Omicron variant did run through the Northeast quite significantly. And we're finding that even though the cases are up, for example, of this new XBB15 variant in the Northeast of the United States, we're not seeing as many ICU beds occupied because so many people. Uh, have had uh, immunity because we've had less severe lockdowns. Uh, like I said in the past, I worry about countries like New Zealand and Australia that had severe lockdowns, and once they let people out... Some of the airplanes I heard they got diverted to Australia. Have you heard yeah, that, so, uh, Gordon Chang? Excuse me, John, I didn't catch what you said. Some of the planes got diverted to uh, Australia. That I didn't hear. No, um, yeah, but... So. Um, the point is that, you know, as the doctor said, um, um, China didn't vaccinate people effectively because the Chinese vaccines are not very effective, especially against Omicron variants. And uh, they did not, uh, as I mentioned, um, think about what would happen should there be a general outbreak as is now occurring. Now, and Russia, Russia doesn't have, have a problem like that. Did you say Russia? Russia. I don't think they have an Omicron problem. No, because now, what they have there is they're using a medicine called Avigan, which is a repurposed drug that was developed in Japan. And as soon as someone gets diagnosed, they give people antiviral pills immediately. And they're using it also in Turkey. And they're using it in Vietnam, Singapore. So there are actually cheap antivirals. So why aren't, the Chinese, why aren't the Chinese bringing it up? 
Again, they oh, actually well, are. In China, they're developing a new oral antiviral because eventually that's what gets you out of these things. We have Paxlovid and we have oral antivirals. That's another advantage. We have a city, we have a urgent care centers on every corner. People can be tested immediately and they can be, they're given antivirals immediately because antiviral pills block and kill every variant because they stop the copy machine. Unlike vaccines and antibodies, they target specific strains whereas we have access to these pills. So if they did a mass scale and they had Paxlovid in China and everyone who got immediately diagnosed took it, the numbers would be very different and they'd be in a better We've got one situation. minute, guys. What, what else do you want to tell? Well, well in China right now... It's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. In China right now, they don't ban the importation of Paxlovid, but they are not using government resources to do that. And they're using government propaganda um, basically to complain against Pfizer about not dropping their prices on Paxlovid, where Mm -hmm. they obviously have a lot of resources in which to import it. The good news is it's less deadly now in the United States and the ICU beds are not filling up. And thank God we have Operation Warp Speed and the antivirals available to us. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Chang, and thank you, uh, Dr. Mihalos, and I promoted you again, Dr. Chang. (laughs) Thank you so much, John. And And happy happy new year year to all, and what do we all stand for? Truth, Truth, justice, justice, and the American American way. way. And thank you, Judge Weinberg. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.